0: Let's sustain that focus for a moment. Let's go to prayer right away and just pray. Great are you, God, oh Father. You're worthy of all attention. All honor belongs to your Son Jesus, the Lamb on the throne. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you for what you mean to us. All the gods, the nations are like idols, but you are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. You're you're real. You're true. You're the true and living God. Know that many more would know you. Lord, would you open up our eyes today to see more of you and give us faith to give more of ourselves over to more of you that we see. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, I'm delighted to be able to get back into the Gospel of Mark series. We've enjoyed a a break over Advent and Christmas, but today we pick up another passage in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, if you want to turn to it with me. And uh, it's a really kind of an interesting passage, for it is the only time that we have uh, as a window in the life of Christ when he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. And we see in Mark, chapter 6, that... Uh, Jesus makes a visit to his hometown where he grew up. And not to be confused with his home away from home, which Capernaum had become, but his real hometown where he'd grown up and where he was known as that little boy that ran the streets and then the carpenter that uh, grew up to be. And so would you turn to Mark chapter 6, and let's open up the word to us in Mark chapter 6 and beginning with verse 1. Would you stand with me as we listen to the word? Mark 6, verse 1 says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor, and he could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. May God bless his word to us today. You may be seated. In chapter 6, we see Jesus in Nazareth. The place where he grew up, where he spent most of his life. We need to identify with that context before we move on. I want that to be sinking in to you. Uh, he's in his hometown. For me, that would be like going back to Hanover, Ontario. In southeastern Ontario, uh, it would be like me walking into Hanover Baptist Church where they knew me as a little boy. It would be like me getting into the pulpit in Hanover Baptist Church and beginning to share about things I had learned and who I was. For some of you, it means, for, for most of you probably, it means going to Swan River, right? I mean, that's where most of you are from, isn't that true? You know? or, or maybe some of you, it's Rosenort, or I don't know where it is, but you think about that place that you grew up, and, and you imagine going back there after years of being away, or maybe just a year, maybe a university student going back and so on, and you're stepping into your home church. That's what Nazareth is for Jesus. Nazareth is a village of 70 miles north of Jerusalem. Some say it was as small as 10 acres in size with about 200 people. Others say it was quite larger. Either way, it was a small, out-of-the-way northern town where everybody knew everybody's business. And besides that, it had a stigma attached to it because it was a rather despised place, Nazareth. John 1.46 says that it was a place that no one wanted to admit they were from. <laughs> it was a detestable backyard, hillbilly place. It says in the Bible that to be called a Nazarene was a slur upon you. And that was Jesus' hometown. And that's where Jesus is on this day in Mark 6 that we open up to. Jesus had spent almost all of his 30 years there as we open up Mark 6. And during most of those years, he was what they called in the the Greek language a tekton. He was what is translated in our Bibles most often a carpenter. Now the word actually could mean someone that worked with wood, metal, or stone. He could have been a builder, a mason, or a carpenter. In the context of Palestine, he was most likely known as a woodworking handyman. He had the skill to make a plow for the farmer. He had the skill to build the yoke or to make some furniture for locals. He had the skill to to fashion doors or windows. He made small buildings. He was that kind of a handyman. Jesus was a skilled worker, he was likely very physically strong. Not some of these pictures that we see of the wimpy Jesus, no, he was likely quite strong and he was definitely blue collar. That's the Jesus that Nazareth knew, that's who he grew up to become, until of course one day he left and became this itinerant evangelist. What's that all about, the locals would say. Now, already in the Gospel of Mark, we have seen that Jesus is provoking curiosity everywhere he travels. One of the most common things that happens is people begin to ask the question, who is this man? Who is he? And uh, it culminates in chapter 8 in, in uh, the passage where Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Right from the beginning of chapter 1, we see that Jesus is attracting attention. First of all, with his teaching, nobody teaches like you teach. And pretty soon they're asking, who who are you? Who is this? We've already talked about the irony of what has been pointed out in Mark in the early chapters, how the the religious leaders say that Jesus has a demon. And the demons say that Jesus is the son of God. Now go figure that one out. Who's messed up? Okay? Okay. That's the kind of things that are happening wherever Jesus travels. We also have at least one window already in Mark's gospel of what Jesus' own family thought about him in chapter 3. We read in verse 21 of a time when when Jesus' mother Mary and some of his younger brothers and sisters took the travel of 25 miles over to Capernaum and they visited where he was preaching one day. He was in a house. And we read in that passage that, uh, that they wanted to see him. And uh, again, uh, it's strange. Uh, They went, it says, to take charge of him. That's what the Bible says. They went to take charge of him in chapter 3 because he was out of his mind, they said. The literal rendering of the Greek is, he's beside himself. He's gone crazy. That's what your own family is thinking of you, Jesus. It says in John chapter 7 that his own brothers did not believe in him. I mean, what is this, going around, traveling, these band of misfits, teaching weird stuff, not eating sometimes? What are you doing with your life? This is what the locals thought. This is what the family of Jesus felt. And Jesus' treatment of these two most important groups in his life uh, was not always that favorable. Think about this for a moment. The, The very two groups where Jesus should have expected the most support the religious leaders and his own family, he got the least support from. They either said he had a demon or he was crazy. And, and you know, maybe some of it he had come to him. And he saved some of his most confrontational language for the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and religious leaders. And we read about it in Mark chapter three. I was referring to earlier when when the, the family travels to Capernaum, they want to see him. He's inside of a house teaching. His mother sends a message. They were outside. Come on, see us. What does he say? He says, "Who are my mother, and my brother, and my sister? Is it not he who does the will of my father in heaven? That's my mother, brother, and sister." And he doesn't go out. See, not the it's not the way to get written into the will, is it? It's not the way to kind of you know be respected and liked as a as a family member that's Jesus that's his life in the family and so his words his actions and etc reveal that are we surprised at this really think about it do you really think that the eternal Son of God that was with God from the very beginning could all of a sudden in in, in the midst of 30 years take on flesh be born into a family grow up in that family with other siblings and not expect to have some trouble? I mean, he's gonna be misunderstood. He's gonna be misunderstood. And so he was. They had crazy misgivings about Jesus. So the people of Nazareth had come to know Jesus a certain way. His own family had come to know him a certain way. They had not seen that Jesus that was beginning to reveal himself after he had left Nazareth after he had gone to the Jordan and was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit came down upon him in dove form after he had been gone into the wilderness where he was tempted by the enemy overcame by the power of the Holy Spirit after he had entered into ministry filled with the Holy Spirit they didn't know that Jesus that happened after he left Nazareth you see As John 1.10 says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. Well, the disciples were getting to know Jesus, weren't they? I mean, we've already studied five chapters of how they were getting to know Him. I mean, this guy could really preach a sermon, and he could really teach the masses, and he could perform miracles, and he raised the dead, he healed the the demoniac, he, he did things we'd never seen before. The disciples were getting to know Jesus. They were in a boat one day on the Sea of Galilee, and it was, it, they thought they were going to drown. And, and he got up, and he just said, Shut up, waves and wind. And everything was calm. And their response was, Who is this? Who is this? And Even, even wind and waves obey him. They were getting to know Jesus. The folks in Nazareth, his brothers and sisters, they didn't know Jesus this way. You need to know that. You need to get this. In the Gospels, we see that none of those who were closest to Jesus had any advantage of knowing who he really was. We also see in the Scriptures that the Bible is not at all bashful about giving the, the warts and all of local family life. We see that Jesus grew up in a family that they didn't all believe in him. They didn't understand. Today he would be called a dysfunctional family, I suppose, since that word is off to you. I was talking to Pastor Alf Bell this past Thursday at our prayer group, and I was talking about what I was going to be preaching on today, and he said, "He said I just take the word dysfunction and put the word sin in because that's what it is all about. We're all sinners and we're all dysfunctional somehow. Just put us all on the continuum, and we're down there somewhere. That's right." You can't, you can't live in a family without experiencing some dysfunction. Online dictionary describes dysfunction as that which is not normal. Okay, well, what's normal today? And so Jesus had grown up in a family that would probably be called dysfunctional today, a family where children and parents didn't understand each other, a family with the same mother but different fathers, that kind of thing. That's the Jesus family. He grew up in that kind of family. Shouldn't surprise us. The rest of the family were sinners. He was the sinless Son of God. There was bound to be problems. Can you imagine being the father or mother of Jesus? You're gathering the family around the table for family devotions. He's always got the last word on it. How do you instruct this guy on anything? I mean, you know, you imagine being a brother or sister to Jesus and you got a spat going on. You know you're always wrong. You know, he's always right. And even when he's right, he's just so nice about it, you can't even get angry at him. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't easy being a younger brother or sister to Jesus. I'm sure there was all kinds of stuff in the family home that happened in Nazareth, not recorded in Scripture. And so, and so he was in this kind of family. And to some degree, we can, we can identify with dysfunction, because all of us, Um, relate to let's just take a side track for just a moment here on this I'm sure that if I were to just mention ask you to reflect on what drives you crazy about a member of your family or a cousin it's always the cousins you know it's never your, it's the cousins You probably have no trouble thinking about something or someone. Each of us have an inner child of our past that we carry with us to every family gathering, and though we are grown-up, mature, self-actualized individuals, somehow we are capable of the most childish behavior, and we can become so unraveled with certain people when they work their magic on us. What is that about family, isn't it? What is it about family, the people that we love the most can push our hot buttons the worst... Am I talking to people that understand this or is it just me that gets... I think so. That happens. I think that actually the passage in the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at this morning has something to say about that. And uh, even though Jesus would have been the best son that parents could have had, the best brother or sister anyone could ask for, everyone else in that family was a sinner and there were problems... And though we are not sinless like Jesus, we can do our best to be the brother, sister, son, or daughter that God wants us to be, and we can still have serious conflict in our family. And as we see today, add the element of faith in God to the center of the equation, and it all explodes even further. Okay. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning for a moment. If you have your green insert that uh, has been placed in your bulletin, you'll notice that to the middle section, the second point has to do with some important things about faith and family dynamics and I'd like to begin by saying first of all that regardless of any faith matters even what we see happening in this text in Mark chapter 6 and what we experience on occasion in our own families is the first point that family can assume that they know all there is to know about us that's what happens you see family can assume that they know everything there is to know about us. That's what we see happening here. We see evidence of this in the people of Nazareth, how they felt about Jesus. It's reflected in verses 2 and 3. Look what it says. They say, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas? And they ran out of J names so they named the next one Simon. And aren't his sisters here with us and it says they took offense at him see, see they already thought they knew everything there was to know about this man that was now 30 years old and spent most of those 30 years in their community perhaps it was familiarity that breeds contempt we know you Jesus Don't. what are you doing we know you you're the carpenter you built my table come on What are you doing talking like a rabbi for? Who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? You see, that's the kind of attitude. You don't have the long flowing robes. You're not a rabbi. You got the workers clothes. You're blue collar. You didn't study. Add to this the fact that the stigma in Palestine and the culture that Jesus grew up in did not move social lines. Rigid social lines, like many parts of the world today india for example, are very castering you don't a carpenter does not become a rabbi. you don't do that, not in jesus' day, and so they were perplexed. it says they were they were amazed. the word in verse two is not the same as the word in verse 6 when Jesus is amazed. We'll come to that later. The word in verse 2 is a perplexed, astonished kind of amazed. They don't get him anymore, you see. That's the point. They don't understand him anymore. They thought they knew this hometown boy. They don't know him anymore. This is what Jesus was facing, and it's what maybe some of you face too. Just to sidetrack a little bit again. Maybe some of you uh, face that when you go home to your hometown, your family, your home church. You've changed the person you grew up being, but everyone back home has you in the box with your name labeled on there. And so they have a hard time taking you seriously, whether it's because you're spouting knowledge that you never had or you decided to not eat meat anymore or you hang out with a new crowd or you just got back from a mission trip or you've become super serious about your faith all of a sudden. Whatever it is that you go home taking with you, they don't know that world, they don't know that you, and they're offended at that because they thought they knew everything there was to know about you. You've changed. And you didn't take them along. You didn't even consult them about that change. So that's what's going on here. Another part of what's going on in Mark chapter 6, the second part, is that besides assuming that they know everything there is to know about you, family can also think that they know what you believe. Family can think that they know how your mind ticks, what your heart is devoted to. To your core values, your reason for living. That's what family can be as well. Remember that the scene in Mark chapter 6 takes place in the synagogue. Jesus' hometown, the synagogue. I remember the very first time that I ever preached a sermon. It was in my home church in Hanover Baptist Church. I remember very distinctly getting up. My knees were shaking so terribly. I was about 17 years old. My whole church family was there and my mom and dad were in about the second pew with my siblings, my mom beaming from cheek to cheek and there was her son sharing a sermon, his first sermon I want you to know that preaching is not like anything I want you to know that preaching is not like a musician getting up here and doing a little recital ahead of his family and friends Preaching is not like an athlete getting up and and shooting hoops and playing hockey ahead of his family and friends. Preaching is not like anything else. Because preaching, you see, is taking something that is intensely private and personal, and you get to keep it private and personal if you want to. But the preacher doesn't have that luxury. Because preaching, if it is what it's supposed to be, it better be personal. It better be private and it better get out or else it's not incarnate, the word of God. Jesus gets up in his hometown and preaches. You know, it has the potential to embarrass everybody. You're getting personal. You're going to start spouting off on things you believe and things you you hold to and all, all the stuff of your life, you're going to spout off on that. I think that Pat and the kids still get nervous when I preach. <laughs> they never know what I'm going to say. Maybe Mary and, and we don't know if Joseph's alive because Mary is mentioned, not Joseph. He might be dead by now, but maybe Mary and his siblings were just spent, expecting the same old, same old like all the rabbis teach and all of a sudden Jesus is saying things that are embarrassing. He's talking about a new kingdom. He's talking about him inaugurating this kingdom. He's talking about him, him fulfilling scripture. Oh, what are you talking about? Many people believe that this text in the hometown Nazareth synagogue is the same as the incident in Luke chapter 4 when he gets up. He's handed the scroll of the, a prophet Isaiah and he starts to preach on Isaiah. Many people think this is the same incident. We're not sure. But in either, either incident, he ends up offending whoever is listening. Where did he get these things from? So that leads us to our third point under that section. Family can assume that they know all there is to know about you. They can think they know what you believe. And family can also be very deeply offended when they don't understand you anymore. Mark chapter 6, we read, they took offense. The word is scandalizo. The word means literally to stumble over. They stumbled over him. They couldn't figure him out. They didn't know what to think of him. In his pursuit of the person that God was calling him to be, in his declaration of the truth that God was calling him to preach, Jesus had offended members of his family, his own hometown people, because they realized that they did not know him anymore. They, they used to. They they realized they did not understand him anymore. They realized they were not part of his life anymore. Some might have even thought that he had crossed over to the dark side and that the miracles he was doing was because of satanic powers. It's easy to demonize anything you don't understand, folks. Don't forget that. And so, perhaps you've had that kind of experience too, where your family or your close friends, because of your faith, do not get you anymore. I think that as Christians if we pursue Christ if we seek to be obedient disciples if we seek to live by this book the word of God if we if we begin sharing this truth with people that we love intensely in our lives we will risk offending people we will offend people you need to be ready for that why are we surprised at that when it happens why are we surprised when we experience the dishonor that Jesus speaks of in verse six, when he says that only in his hometown and his own people does a prophet have, is, is a prophet without honor, why is it, I ask you, why do you think that you should have honor where Jesus, your Lord, did not have honor? Why is it that you think you can go home to your family and have honor and respect when Jesus could not go home to his family have honor and respect? Why do you think you can do that? Jesus said, do not be surprised. Jesus said, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Why are we surprised when, when our, our basis for living and the things we get excited about that the family that, that we lived with didn't, don't get excited about? Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised if we are dishonored for our faith beliefs when Jesus himself was dishonored over and over again. You know, friends, if you go to many parts of the world today, you know, you go to Arabic-speaking countries today, you know that if a Muslim turns from his or her faith and says, I am going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we're not talking about dishonor. We're talking about having a funeral. My son that was once alive is now dead. We're not talking about no more communication. I have met immigrants in Canada who have come to know Christ and have had to flee their countries because their family or somebody else was trying to kill them. That's that's what that's dishonor. <laughs> that's dishonor. Why do we think that we should somehow be respected and liked and honored in our families if we hold to this this incredible north star Jesus Christ and everybody else is following some other star why is it that we think that we aren't worthy of bearing the shame just as Jesus did we miss the point of discipleship friends I want you to know I'm not speaking just theory here I know I am speaking from experience in my own family in my own friendships where, where I've longed to share my faith and get into what is really important to me and instead I've got to keep the superficial for a while and I try to dip down and get into faith matters and it's scorned or it's mocked or it's just dismissed. I know that it is the most difficult place to share your faith in your own home. I know that even as Christian, Christian families, still you as Christians can have the hardest time sharing about your faith and being zealous for the Lord in your families because the normal Christian family loves to just take the lowest common denominator and have a nominal faith experience. And if you're getting excited, that's rocking the boat. Friends, the desire to be respected and honored can be an idol in your life in itself that you need to tear down, let Jesus be Lord. It leads to our our last point in the message, and that is the incongruity between faith and unbelief. How can it be said any clearer? Faith and unbelief do not mix. Light has no place with darkness, nor darkness with light. There is bound to be disagreement, misunderstanding, judgmentalism. Do you know that there are two times in all the Gospels that Jesus is amazed? I think this is fascinating twice in all the gospels it says Jesus was amazed now wouldn't you want to know what those two things are twice in all the gospels Jesus was amazed one of them is right here in verse 6 in his hometown he was amazed at their unbelief do you know what the other one is it's on the other end of the continuum He's amazed at the faith of the centurion soldier. It says in Luke chapter 7. I like that. I think that you and I need to develop living on that continuum. You and I need to learn to keep our radar up on that continuum. It should be that when we are in life's stream and we go home for a family reunion or a a school reunion or some old friends or something, we should be on that continuum. Does this person have no faith or does this person have genuine faith? I love it when I hear from some old friend that's come to know Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But I'm just as amazed when when I see such rebellious unbelief on the part of someone who had every chance to know Christ. Submit themselves, humble themselves, and receive salvation. Two things amaze Jesus: unbelief and faith. We need to think that way, friends. That should be the most important thing that you think about when you think about your mom or dad or friends or brother or sister or whatever. That's that's primary. It must have grieved Jesus. I think if Jesus would have been keeping a journal around this time of his life the entry in the journal that evening in Nazareth would have been very sad. I couldn't even do much here. My own hometown. I'd just come from the other side of the Sea of Galilee where I I delivered a man from a whole legion of demons. I just talked about a, a, a woman with a bleeding disease that came to know me. I just raised a sick girl and, and raised her from the dead. I go to my hometown, I can only heal a few sick people because nobody believes in me here. Oh, it must have been a sad time for Jesus. He's saddened, but he's, he's perplexed, but he's not paralyzed. Because we notice in the very next verses in chapter 6, 6 and 7 and so on, he left Nazareth. Do you know that this is the last time we see Jesus in any synagogue? I'm not saying it's the last time he went to a synagogue, I don't know, but the last time it's mentioned. He left that place and began to go village to village it says, teaching and training his disciples. You see Jesus was perplexed, but he wasn't he, he wasn't paralyzed. We need to remember this, friends. You might go home, you might have, have family members you're burdened for. It. That's a good thing. You go home and you get burdened for your family because you see the, such unbelief. But you do not lose hope. Don't let it paralyze you. God is going to use you for other lives. I pray God send somebody into my family members because I want to be sent into somebody else's family members. That's the way the body of Christ works. That's the way God ordains. He's a sovereign Lord. You may not speak into somebody's life in your family but maybe someone else will. Are you faithful to be speaking in to a life that somebody else is praying for? And so, as the worship team comes and we conclude the service this morning, I want to end on the note of just this one thought. Jesus did not receive the honor that he deserved in Nazareth. And the whole point of our lives, friends, is that we want to give Him the honor that He deserves. Amen? That's what we want to do. We're we're all about Him getting the honor that He deserves. And we're all about family members and friends and loved ones acknowledging that Jesus is worthy of the honor that He deserves. That's what we're all about. That's the extent, that's the end to which we pray. That's the end to which we labor That's the thing we're going to be celebrating even tonight at our business meeting. That's what God is all about, and that's what we want to be all about.